Michael Geist is a Canadian academic, the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. He's roundly, or at least widely, disliked by many belonging to the upper echelons of the English-speaking publishing world. Welcome, uh, Michael, to The Bibliophile. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's quite an introduction. Is it accurate? Uh, it might be. Uh, it's true that uh, not everybody agrees with everything I have to say. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what makes it interesting. Okay. The Bibliophile podcast is mostly concerned with issues of interest to readers, writers, publishers, designers, booksellers, collectors, and others working in, and participating in the book culture. So let, if we could, I'd just like to start with readers. How does the recent extension of copyright in Canada by 20 years to 70 years affect me reading three of the greatest, most profound, provocative, influential thinker writers that this country has ever produced, Northrop Fry, Marsha McLuhan, and George Grant. Well, so first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. And I guess I'd start by saying, you know, obviously those works are available to people and they'll continue to be available to people. But uh, all three of the authors that you cite are authors who over the next 20 years would works would have entered into the public domain. Uh, they will not now, and we are headed in, now in uh, a 20-year period where no new works will enter into the public domain. And I think if we think about how people access works, how works can be disseminated and distributed, how those works might have been disseminated or distributed, I think it will have an impact on on readers. Not every reader. There may be some readers who will find the, those same works in a library or in a bookstore, but in a world where we move more and more towards digitization, where um, interesting things can happen with works that are in the public domain, I don't think those things are hap will happen or they are far less likely to happen. And it'll have a real impact, I think, on uh, the availability, the dissemination of some of those works for um, for a whole, literally for a whole generation of Canadians. Okay, you said interesting things can happen in the public domain, like what? Well, as a starting point, we've already seen a number of librarians just in the last two weeks since this effectively, and as we record this, since this took effect, um, being approached with potential digitization initiatives, for example, and had to say, no, those works might have been entering into the public domain. Uh, and since they are not, we can't do those kinds of things. And so I think at a minimum, some of the digitization works and uh, or digitization activities would have an impact. Some of the follow on activities, people seeking to build upon some of the prior works, use them in a range of different circumstances, whether in education and classrooms um, or in other kinds of ways, all of which I think do have a real world impact when those works remain in copyright beyond the burn standard of life of the author plus 50 years. And I should note, and, and we can certainly get into it, you know, the, I, I think in this debate, the attention often, of course, does focus on on some of the big names. They're the ones that will be most recognizable to people, and they will recognize that um, those are works that they might have been able to use, and 
uh, or make use of in certain ways had they been in the public domain and find restrictions. But I think one of the real concerns that many have with respect to the extension of the term of copyright are, this, are the, the vast majority of the works that don't have that kind of commercial value or that name recognition. Um, that And those works will also be subject to the same limitations, the same uh, uh, in a, uh, lack of accessibility. And that's where I think the loss in many ways is far greater. It isn't just yeah. the the big names because you can still find some of those big names. It's many of the other works that don't have much commercial or any commercial value anymore. And yet we've adopted a system that treats it all the same, that has the effect of excluding all of that for another 20 years. And that's where I think the loss may be even more profound. Okay. Excluding that for 20 years, what does that mean exactly? Like, who's benefiting from that? Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's a super important question. It's one that has been raised with me on a number of conversations about this term extension that have occurred over the last number of weeks. As I think many people were not even aware that this was happening and have kind of woken up to it and have been a bit surprised uh, to find that, in fact, this has taken place. And and I think that the, the reality is that there are very few beneficiaries from this. That's one of the, I think, most troubling parts of all of this. We can we can identify the costs or we can identify some of the limitations that are created by term extension. But it is much harder to find, you know, the estates that still have rights to commercially relevant works that now enjoy the benefits from these uh, from this extension. That's not to say there aren't any. Surely there are some. And if there weren't any, then presumably we wouldn't have seen lobbying to have the extension. But um, the reality is the overwhelming majority of the works, there are no real beneficiaries anymore. The, the works themselves aren't even commercially relevant. Oftentimes you don't even know necessarily um, who the rights holder is. Get, that gets you into some of the orphan works related issues and the like. Um, but what we've done uh, and we're not alone in this regard. Other countries have done the same, which is sometimes the justification that's used is to treat all of these works exactly the same to say just the default is it all gets extended. The term, uh, you know, adds this additional 20 years and the impact in terms of like in terms of the benefits um, are are frankly non-existent for the vast majority of those works. And yet, yeah, that's, where, that's still where we end up. Well, what I, I guess what I'm thinking is that I suppose if if these works that we don't know about, you know, if we don't know about them, we can't find them. So, in other words, there might be stuff that is really interesting that because of this extension, some nice organization might not scan it or put it up on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part of what may happen. And I think we're, and obviously you're focused on books, but as, as we think about other kinds of works, you know, Lester Pearson certainly is one name that's been raised. There's all sorts of historical figures we can think of. Uh, I'm a law professor. I can think of Supreme Court justices such as Sapinka and, uh, and others that have that whose works would have entered into the public domain at this point in time. We find uh, historians. There's, there's many, many very notable people um, who are now captured by this over this next 20 year period and the use there, whether that's for an art, for, from a heritage perspective or a cultural perspective, um, where I think we might well have seen 
digitization initiatives or other kinds of initiatives to try to make those works more accessible to Canadians or to the globe as a whole. And um, in many instances, you know, the, the default answer based on this default change will be, no, you can't do that uh, right. because the works are still under copyright. Right. Okay. And that obviously just diminishes whatever research someone might be doing. If they, if they don't come across something uh, that they might otherwise, then it's not, you know, their findings aren't going to be as interesting. Well, I think that's true. I think it's not just that they, they won't be as interesting. They may not be as accurate. We, you yes. know, it, it may well, you know, we, we talk, we live in an age where there's such concern around misinformation, the historical record becomes so critically important in that regard. And yeah. when we're dealing with notable figures, you want to, you want to find ways to ensure you have this kind of access and, you know, to take so much of that out of the public domain for 20 years surely has has a cost or at a minimum, it's very difficult to see where the benefit is. I just uh, I don't see it. There isn't a commercial benefit, to be sure. There isn't a cultural benefit from making these works less accessible. Um, and so the, faced with the choice that the, gov- the government had first, whether to extend or not, but then even once the decision was made to extend uh, to reject or to not adopt any sort of essentially mitigation measures to try to limit uh, some of the the negative effects of this is is how why, why I think many have been left really discouraged with this particular policy decision. So what is it? Just stupidity? I, I wish I had a <laughs> I wish I had a good answer um, for why. I think it's worth noting that you know, this was this is not, in my view, anyway, a particularly partisan issue. Uh, we had successive governments, both liberal and conservative, then liberal again, uh, who were opposed to term extension, despite facing pressure from other countries to do so. I mean, we've gone, we went through pretty much at least a 20 year period where there was pressure coming from the U.S. in particular to extend the term of copyright. And for a long time, the decision within government was simply not to do it. I think for some of the reasons that your questions are getting at is that they had a tough time identifying any real benefits. And so from a policy perspective, they did not believe this was a justifiable reform. Um, And your listeners may know that Canada started to backtrack in one trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, uh, where they did agree to a term extension. Once the U.S. under Donald Trump left that agreement, that then opened the door for Canada and a number of other countries within that agreement, all of whom had been pressured into the term extension, but I think were like-minded in the sense that this was not something that they thought had much benefit to suspend those particular provisions. Um, and so that bought a bit more time in a sense, but then of course, uh, once we were pressured again by the U.S. this time to renegotiate NAFTA under the Trump administration, there was the decision to go ahead and extend the term of copyright. And one understands that in this the in the context of a very large trade agreement, is copyright term going to be the thing that holds all of that up? Um, unlikely. And yet still, the government left itself the opening to find mechanisms to implement this extension or to provide the additional 20 years in a way that would have mitigated against some of the kinds of harms we've been describing. They chose not to do so. Um, I think it was a stupid decision, but I wouldn't attribute it to stupidity. Um, I think they knew precisely what they're doing. I think just quickly they've decided to try to bury this as much as possible. It's why you found it in why it was done in a 
in a, in a budget implementation bill, no press releases associated with it. They simply didn't want anybody paying any sort of attention to it and thought that they could get it through without without any sort of resultant uh, outcry. And in that respect, it's fair to say they were they were right. I mean, we're seeing in some ways the outcry after the, the horses left the barn, so to speak, because the term extension is in effect. And suddenly people are saying, why did we just do that? Well, the only argument I've heard to, to this point is that it's compliance. We're, we have to do it because the rest of the English-speaking world is doing it. That's the only thing I've heard. But what am I, let's just float this one past you. We, I mentioned George Grant. Now, Michael Ignatieff was the leader for a short period of the Liberal Party. So he calls up Justin Trudeau and he says, you don't mind tacking an extra 20 years onto this copyright legislation, do you? I'm a little short on cash and I'm concerned about my grandchildren. Well, you know, I, 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 this, it's, to me, it's, you know, that, that's the kind of theory about who might benefit from this or how there might be a benefit. I don't, I didn't, you know, I, I don't see that kind of thing happening to, to the extent which we see that happening. We see it from sort of larger corporate interests, you know, the proverbial Disney's of the world that have for a long time been pressuring. Now you know, is related it, to George Grant, of course, but, yeah. but still, but still, okay, let's just put it in these terms then. If Disney hires McKinsey to lobby government because it's going to make them a lot of money and it's not that expensive to hire a lobby firm relative to the profit they can make. Is that what happened? I love that example. Um, well, listen, I think there's, there's no question that there was a fair amount of lobbying that, that took, that took place and has taken place on this issue for some time. And we have a government that, especially in recent years, has been particularly attuned to pressure coming, I think, especially from the Quebec cultural lobby, which may have been pushing for some of this. So there may be some amount of lobbying that took place. I don't doubt there was. But I, I mean, I, I think that in the context, first, of the inclusion in the trade agreement, the U.S. had made that an issue that they've pressured for some time. And so... It was unsurprising that it was there, and I think in certain respects it was unsurprising that Canada would give on it. The bigger question, which I think you're trying to get at, is why did we decide to do nothing at all? It may have been that that lobbying. It's it 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 is striking, just for those that aren't aware, that you know the the lead copyright review that the government conducted back in 2019, statutorily mandated when they reformed the law in 2012, said every five years, we've got to conduct a review. They conducted this review. They looked at this issue was on the table at the time. And they said, listen, if you're going to extend, you need to consider some mitigation measures. In particular, they talked about a registration process so that it would be life of the author plus 50 years, plus an additional 20 years for those that wanted it, which seemed to have the effect of ensuring that those that thought there was still commercial value would be able to get their extra 20 years, but all that other work would not. It seemed to be a, a pretty reasonable compromise and one that would fit in within international standards through the Berne Convention. I think that the government was convinced through some of the kind of lobbying that you're describing, that this was complicated, um, that not, that there would be pressure from other countries not to do it because other countries haven't done it. So why should Canada? Um, and so ultimately, the path of least, least resistance, I think, won out. It was easiest just to bury it at the very end of a budget bill 
budget bills aren't going to die and just go ahead, despite the fact they had even held a consultation on the issue. And while they hadn't been given particularly warm feedback to the committee's own recommendation, they at least did talk about and recognize that there might be real value in some mitigation measures uh, to address some of those harms. And yet just this was the this was the easiest way to ensure that as few people paid attention as possible. Like, is there is it just about money? Well, if you take it as a fair position that culturally there is no enhancement from this, both in terms of works that are in the public domain, stay in the public domain. All the works that have already been created now get this extension, but they've already been created. And so the fact that they've already been created means that there is no, that the, the whole aspect of copy of the Copyright Act that created an incentive to create doesn't apply to any of those works that are already out there. So then That's the only right. question is, does this new approach create incentives for new kinds of works to be created? And I think we have plenty of uh, evidence from economists and others, and frankly, just common sense for most that, you know, there, there's nobody who was thinking about creating, writing a great novel back in December and said, nah, I'm not going to bother with that, who suddenly now has a change of view in January because their heirs get an extra 20 years. It just does. It's just such an irrelevant aspect to the overall creative process that it just any incentives are sure are, 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 I think, de minimis, but the extent to which they exist are clearly, I think, outweighed by the harms that are created. Yes, exactly. So that's your point. So what, so my question is, so why did they do it? I know I'm just repeating this, but is it just money? Is that well, I it? think it is. I'm not in the room. Um, I, you know, so I don't, I don't know directly why the individuals who made the decisions they made, made them, but why do we have this policy? We have this policy because there were large, right, large corporations that holds, held certain rights who are of the view that an extension would would extend the commercial life of certain of certain works that they had rights in. And so there was money. There was economic value for them in extending the term of copyright. And of course, their own particular view would be that the all these other negative aspects of it aren't really relevant. They're just concerned about what their gains are. They were able to convince governments to uh, either adopt, first adopt that position domestically and then lobby other governments to do the same. Canada, I, let's let's be fair, Canada was a notable holder for a long period of time. You could say a beacon. I, I think a lot of people did look to Canada as as an example of, you know, a country that that had given an honest look at the policy behind this and said, and simply said, no, it just doesn't make any sense. But the fact that, that we might've been held up as an example by other countries, I think it does help provide a further uh, explanation for why uh, we see what took place because it's, it isn't just that, that money side, it's, it's kind of in a sense failing to, to comply with what some of those other countries have, have adopted. You don't, there aren't a lot of brownie points or awards for, striking out on your own in some of these instances the no, desire I mean, for I, many of those countries is to is to simply follow their model yeah i think that's how many saw canada is sort of like that we better stamp this out before it spreads we better stamp out this reasonable thinking before it spreads i i think that's right i think we've seen that on a number of different issues where canada has often been 
been more open to, you know, sometimes described as made in Canada solutions, other times uh, simply adopted an approach where they've looked at the at the the national interests, they've looked at the policy objectives uh, of the Copyright Act, they've looked at some of the things the Supreme Court of Canada has had to say, and arrived at, at a place that um, differs to a certain extent from what you find in some other countries, and I think oftentimes reflects a better compromise. And in this instance, there was room for compromise. I mean, one of the interesting things here and discouraging things, I suppose, is that in other areas around copyright, you know, you often, you often find obviously parties at different ends of the spectrum in terms of what they'd like to see happen. And I think there's often been legit efforts by governments to try to find reasonable compromises. Not everyone agrees with them, but nevertheless, there's been efforts to try to do that. On this policy, the starting point is either you extend or you don't. There isn't really a middle ground. But once you make that ex- decision to extend, there was room for some amount of compromise. And we didn't get the courage from the relevant ministers uh, or from the government. I think we got very poor advice coming from the departments themselves, who may well have looked at this. And, you know, you've you've been talking about sort of what, what are the outside pressures, money, governments and the like. On the internal side, you know, too often government officials aren't rewarded for coming up with innovative policies. They're only yeah. uh, they they only face uh, a backlash where those things happen. The, the easiest approach is to simply do nothing or to do the least amount. And it results in typically the least amount of criticism. And in this instance, we've got two departments that are responsible for these issues on the industry side. Um, current minister has been very engaged around the world in, in the automotive sector and other areas has not shown a particular interest when it comes to uh, copyright. And on the heritage side, we've had a minister who's been much more focused on internet related issues. We've had a department that's been subject to all kinds of controversy involving its anti-hate program and things like that. Um, and so it may well have been that department officials decided that uh, to the extent to which possible, this was not going to be an area where they were going to try to push the envelope in any any real way. Okay. But if we get back to Macaulay, who, who spoke eloquently on this in the 1840s, he wanted to get down to principles, and you've just stated that principle. The whole reason this is put in place is to provide an incentive for great uh, and all writers, artists, to to create and to continue to create, right? Well, copyright has two objectives, the Supreme Court of Canada tells us. I mean, its primary objective is to serve the public interest, and the public interest yeah. is best served by both creating incentives to create works and ensuring access and dissemination of those works. And, you know, how we strike that balance between those competing objectives, of course, is the subject of no shortage of, of debate, which helps explain your, your introduction with saying some uh, aren't necessarily fans of some of the things that I have to say, because people have different views on the best way to strike that balance. But in the context of copyright of this, this particular issue around copyright term, there just isn't the, there isn't a whole lot to be said in terms of the incentives for creativity. Once you're, once you've passed a certain stage, I mean, if we were, if we were talking about a copyright term, 
that lasted five years or 10 years in your life yes, suddenly was yes. in the public domain. One, <laughs> one can well understand, or 20 years, one can well understand, well, I, you know, someone take issue saying, well, listen, sometimes it takes works a long time to find an audience. Um, that doesn't provide me with the kind of recompense that I would have otherwise wanted. Although note that there are other areas of intellectual property where that are shorter, like that patents, for example, in the 20 year uh, time frame. But nevertheless, um, one can understand why a very short term, someone might say that they don't feel that's fair given the amount of work that they put in. It doesn't allow them yeah. to, to fully enjoy the commercial benefits. But once you're once you're at the person's entire life and now at an additional 50 years, uh, it gets, I think, harder and harder to make the case that it, that any that the further extensions are really resulting in any further incentives. And so that side of the public interest is not being very well served. But as we've talked about, we can easily identify many of the many examples, I think, of how this is harming the other side of the public interest, the dissemination and access side, which, as I say, is why uh, I think governments for many years found that this was not in the public interest. And frankly, it's why I think many who now see that we've gone ahead and, and have done this uh, are are left a bit befuddled to say well why and you know they're searching for answers that and and having a hard time coming up with anything other than well it was about some lobbying or some money or about a government that got pressured into doing this and wanted to do its its absolute best to ensure that as few canadians were aware of it as possible again that's because i think the argument is so sort of pathetic it's it is just about money i mean if they had a decent argument they might roll it out more publicly well, we've been debating this for 20 years, and if there was a better argument, we would have heard it by yes, now. Yes, yes, okay. Um, and okay. and it, it simply is never it, it, it's never come because there isn't. It is in the self-interest of a small number of rights holders to extend the term of copyright, and they have achieved that at a cost of, you know, 99.9%, probably even higher, of works now being shut out of the public domain until... Um, 2043 as the starting point in Canada. Uh, I mean, it's a devastating cost at the very time that technologies have enabled new kinds of access um, for people across Canada uh, and around the world. I mean, there was a time I grew up in, in the days where the place where you looked for this information was, of course, your local library or the library in schools. And, you know, I look at my kids now and they equate access with their devices and the the range of different ways that they can gain access to these works and the fact that we have have created a system or adopted now legal rules that will make it less likely for them to find these kinds of works this way um is is i think devastating for so the advancement of our understanding of our own history for Michael, let's just get into exactly what that is. If it if if they hadn't extended it, what does going into the public domain provide one with? What cheaper access, uh, new editions that are produced less expensively with more footnotes? Um, what what am I going to get that I'm that I'm not going to get if right, the, with well, this new re- legislation? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and I think it, it can be all of the above and, and then some. So uh, it is possible that, that certain of the works then are, are reissued the, and at that stage with at least the rights holder 
removed from that equation that may lower that may have the effect of lowering the cost there's some evidence that that, that is in fact the case but uh, i don't think it's purely about sort of those lower costs i think it is it is about the the scope of innovation around some of some of the works that have real value today and the greater level of accessibility to works that are largely hidden and yeah. uh, we've been in an era where they may have may have been made more openly accessible to others. And so, you know, I think the ability to take some of those works to create digitized annotated versions, to um, find ways to, to bring them in new kinds of compilations is the sort of thing that uh, once, once you know that one of the questions you don't have to ask anymore is, okay, you know, Am I limited in some way from a rights perspective in terms of what I can do? And once right. it's in the public domain, you've got the ability to do that. Uh, and then, of course, beyond that, I think we have seen an enormous amount of interest. I think there should be, frankly, still more about how do we digitize as much as possible to preserve that heritage, to gain access to to these kinds of things. And uh, once works are in the public domain, that, that removes uh, an exceptionally important barrier. You know, lawyers are by their nature, pretty conservative in terms of providing advice in this area. And so uh, if someone is entertaining the prospect of saying, I'm, I want to do research or make, make information available on stuff in, in, in the schools and did, uh, you know, and what took place in to indigenous communities across the country, for example, in the residential schools, you know, the idea that someone might well have to take a look, are, are some of these works in the public domain or are they not? Can I make them available? Those are questions that in an ideal world, if the goal is to try to bring this history out so that we can engage in the kind of reconciliation that uh, is so desperately needed. Yeah, well, get at the truth. You have to ask. Yes. Yeah. You don't want to have to ask those questions. You want to, yeah. you want to ensure that these kinds of things can happen. And, you know, I, I think that, Copyright term extension does, at the end of the day, create uh, an unnecessary or bar- unnecessary barrier in this regard, and it simply does it for so long. I mean, <laughs> people have a hard time thinking uh, ahead to next year or two or five years from now. And when you tell someone that this is a twenty-year time frame, I mean, this is just a time frame that for many is just really almost unimaginable at this stage. Well, to think that, well, nothing, you, you really mean nothing is entering the public domain until 2043? And yeah, you have to yeah. shake your head and say, yes, that's exactly what this means. Yeah. Okay. We're going to change gears here. Just uh, reference uh, an interview I, I recently conducted with the director of a, a lovely movie called Turn Every Page, Lizzie Gottlieb. And the movie's about her father, the legendary editor, Bob Gottlieb, and the great political biographer, uh, Robert Caro. And there's, a, there's a, a moment in that movie just released where Caro says to Gottlieb, he, he really wants to write a biography that's going to take years and years to write. And uh, the, his question is, how will I live? And uh, Gottlieb says, don't worry, we'll take care of it. Now, the reason that he can say that is that the publisher will get recompensed for the risk that they've taken. And quite a number of people, are, and I don't know if this is directly connected, are saying that copyright 
is what's required to enable this kind of relationship to take place. It took them 50 years. Sorry, it took them 50 years to create the 50 years to get the recompense. I'm sorry. No, it's taken uh, (laughs) their relationship has lasted 50 years. years. They've created uh, four together, produced, published four magnificent volumes of Lyndon Baines Johnson's biography. And Mm -hmm. everyone's concerned about the fifth one getting finished before they uh, leave us. Anyway, the concern is that this kind of, this is what, this is the ideal world. This is what you want. And the reason that a publisher can be so supportive is that they know that they've got adequate uh, copyright protection to get recompense for the risk that they've taken. Right. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Listen, arguing against term extension is not an argument against copyright protection at all. And you haven't heard me say um, no to copyright protection. In fact, I think I articulate precisely the opposite, recognizing that some terms might be viewed as as too short. You know, I guess your question is, are there instances where works might be created so either so late in life that the term itself becomes fairly sh- seen as too short or that as publishers go through an analysis of the kind of support they can provide for a work, yes. the, more, the more time they have, uh, to essentially amortize that, uh, the easier it will be to to pay off. Well, to take the I risk, think, it's easier yes. for them to take the risk. And I can understand. And I can I can understand that argument. I think first, that doesn't say anything about all the works that have already been created, uh, which no. now are subject to that term extension. So, and in fact, if if anything, that's an argument against term extension for existing works. I mean, essentially, yeah, that that that's an argument that that one might try to make if we were to say that um, this would apply for any new works created now and going forward, but that for all those other works, actually, I think that actually makes a compelling argument against term extension, because what it basically says is that publishers did their analysis at the time uh, of creating the work, reached the conclusion that they could in fact get the necessary payoff, went ahead and, and did it and published and made the investment. And now we are providing effectively a gift of additional yes. 20 years and yes. the gift is being paid for by the public. Yes. So, it's, it's money for nothing. Yes. So I think in that sense, I think it's a strong, it's a strong argument for why this is such a bad policy right now that, that we're, we're providing this reward. The public as a whole with less access is providing this reward when publishers or others may have essentially made their economic bet at a, a certain point in time based on what they thought was, let's say, life plus 50. Um, in yeah. terms of will this create further works now because they now will, be, a publisher will believe I'm, I can better make an investment in something because there is that extra 20 years. I must admit, I'm skeptical that that's in fact the, that, that that's in fact the case. You know, I think, you know, large public companies certainly are, uh, in this space, looking at quarterly results or annual results, the idea that that a CEO or an acquisitions editor or whomever is going to take a look at this and say, you know, one of the real benefits here is that after we're all long gone, someone else that this company may still benefit from this. <laughs> yeah. It strikes me as a time frame that just doesn't exist. I don't think in modern modern commercial 
analysis. That's not to say that there aren't any instances where someone might say, hey, there, there, there might be a bit of incremental value, but there are so many other factors into what's a success and what isn't. That additional 20 years just strikes me as a tiny, tiny part of the overall decision-making process. And I'd be surprised if there were significant new projects that were greenlit based on the additional uh, like additional <laughs> 20 years. I mean, I just don't Well, yes. That. And of course, it's also wishful thinking in the sense that they, they're acting as if the company is going to be thriving in, a, you know, in, in that many years. Yes. Our time frames are just so much shorter than, than that. I, I was just talking about the, the 20 years and just how, how, how long that seemed with yes. this additional 20 years. You know, in this example, we're talking about something far, far <laughs> beyond that. They we're literally in some instances getting out of the century in terms of um, yes. when, when, when that payoff might actually arise. Yes, I, I must say, though, that, so, you know, one of the great publishing houses that I that I love and uh, and respect, admire is Faber and Faber. And the reason that they've been able to stay independent and make the kind of decisions and produce the, the great work that they have is because of cats, the play. That's where they made the money. Yeah, well, I think it, I think it does highlight that even when there are works that you might think are going to be great works and perhaps great commercial successes, there's oftentimes no rhyme or reason. And so sometimes there is a great yeah. commercial success and sometimes there isn't. I mean, that's an effect, the venture capital model where your bet isn't that they are all going to be a hit. No, but what you no. need are a few big hits to fund the ones that aren't because nobody's smart enough to know in advance, which is necessarily going to be the hit and which isn't. I understand that as, as a business model, we see it in a lot of areas, the, the the term extension, I don't think, really plays much of a role in that regard. No, no. I mean, but who would have guessed that it would have been cats that did the yeah. trick? Well, that's why you invest. I mean, you invest well, that's in anything yes. because you never know. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think that's the point for these guys is that if they got their net spread really, really widely, then there's a greater chance that one of them's going to pop. And I, and I, and I totally understand that. I think, as I say, I think we see that in a number of different places. I mean, that, that kind of diversification in a number of sectors, if there's an attempt to sort of link diversification of investment to copyright term extension, I got to say, I'm not really seeing the link. I, I get that someone might say, well, I don't know what's going to be a hit. Something might be a hit. I want to be able to monetize as long as possible, but I have a hard time reconciling that with the realities of, of, of these kinds of business decisions that, uh, you know, the, the time frames are rarely in the decades or many decades long in terms of when payoffs uh, can take place. And, and for, and for that matter, whether or not even cats is going to be still paying off in uh, yes. 50 years or so. Um, just getting back to Macaulay for a minute. Uh, he talked about the fact, that if everyone thinks that protections are too costly, they'll ignore them, particularly if they're unenforceable. It's like people, educators, teachers who photocopy stuff because, they, first of all, there's no way it's going to be enforced. I don't, they see it that way. Publishers think they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars here. Does this is this come up in in the extension or maybe you could clarify that for me? Yeah, well, I mean, the the question of enforcement is an interesting one. I mean, my view on education is not that people are making photocopies uh, 
without regard for the law. Um, I actually, my experience in many educational institutions actually is quite the opposite. I think that we have copyright officers now in many institutions, pretty much all institutions. They are very sensitive to these issues and um, do their best analysis based on their read of the law to ensure that they are compliant with the law. Uh, I think, though, that broadly speaking, if you create laws that that you think are difficult to enforce and are likely to lead to people to infringe. I think there is a real harm there to copyright. I mean, I find it sometimes ironic that those that profess to be great supporters of copyright are at the same time comfortable with rules that they know may not be respected, which I think under ultimately undermines respect for copyright. You know, to me, one of the virtues of a truly balanced copyright system that respects both creators and users is that you enhance respect for copyright. Part of the problem when one looks at this or tries to argue, well, copyright is, is simply about authors and we want to ensure that, that, that they're paid. And that's not what the court says that I don't think leads to the sort of respect for, for copyright amongst, amongst people. And in that sense, I view it almost as anti-copyright because I don't think that it enhances our public respect um, for copyright. Again, I don't know that we've necessarily seen a lot of arguments around this uh, in terms of sort of making the connection between respect for copyright and term extension, in part because there is that kind of respect. If you're going to engage, let's say, if you're an educational institution or a foundation and you want to engage, let's say, in a historical digitization project around certain Canadian works, you're going to look at the law and you're going to do an analysis based on where the law is at. I don't, I think it would be an unusual circumstance where someone would say, well, um, this is still under copyright, but I might as well just take a chance and I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. I, I think that I don't, my experience is that that's not what happens. It yeah. is far more likely um, that these entities will simply not engage in these activities and simply say, listen, that's a, a risk that I don't want to take on. And in fact, I think the government back when they introduced and passed copyright law back in 2012, recognized that they did. Yeah. They actually, they, you know, they adjusted the approach with respect to um, damages to try to ensure that that there was that almost to remove some of the the deep conservatism, small c conservatism here in terms of reluctance to to even come anywhere close to where the, to pushing the envelope uh, or the, where the line might be. So they said, listen, where there's non-commercial infringement, we're going to set a cap on that infringement. It's simply not appropriate to create a scenario whereby someone does an analysis and says, well, I can't do this, or I'm, I'm let's even better. I'm not sure if I can do this. There's some risk that it might be infringing, but given the potential damages that are here, I definitely I'm can't not. do it because yeah. they could run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the government was like, uh, that doesn't strike, that doesn't strike us as an appropriate use of damage awards. And so they tried to create a cap to remove some of that risk, but, even removing some of that risk still didn't remove, I think, the view that is held within education is that, and that is they want to be respectful of copyright. And they are not going to take an approach that simply violates copyright just because they think the the damage awards uh, are unlikely to be very significant. Now, I know that there will be some that will disagree with that, who think that they are um, infringing copyright right now. You know, I, I would submit that that view has now been taken to the Supreme Court on several occasions, and the court has consistently found that, in fact, education has been operating uh, within their interpretation of where the Copyright Act is at. Just uh, winding down then, would you say that this extension 
might even damage the reputation of copyright in the sense that it's just basically money for nothing. And people would think this is bullshit. They're taking advantage of us. I'm not going to respect it. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I would say that there, that, many Canadians aren't thinking necessarily about copyright term extensions. Those that are, <laughs> right. uh, you know, I have to be realistic. We have to be realistic about this. Those that are, I think are, are troubled by this, but for those to the extent to which that people do take a look, especially some of the questions, some of the kind of the, your, the way your, where your questions have been driving about the, why did this happen? I think that does have the potential certainly to undermine public confidence and support, not just for copyright, but for, for essentially copyright policy. For the view that if government is willing to move forward with changes that don't really, at the end of the day, benefit ordinary Canadians, don't benefit our yeah. cultural institutions, have, have very, virtually no benefits at all and are driven by either geopolitical considerations or lobbyist considerations. And that's what where you ultimately end up with. You know, the next time the government comes asking on copyright policy or frankly on many other policy measures we're going to get consultations this year in canada on online safety and online harms we have one on competition law right now may well get some stuff on ai and copyright um, in the months ahead i can well understand why there may be many canadians who might be even interested in these issues and we'll take a look at what just took place and basically say why bother you know that if the government is not going to listen to me or listen to or take account of the the best interests of, of Canadians, even when there were options to try to mitigate against the harms. What's the point of participating in processes that ultimately feel largely like theater? They've already made up their mind and the extent to which they haven't, they're simply going to take the path of least resistance anyway. And it's those voices that are more powerful than mine. And, you know, the, the, the individual looking at this because, you know, they don't have the lobbying power behind them. They don't have foreign governments behind them. And so at the end of the day, I think it undermines respect for the, the process. And I think that's, that is exceptionally uh, discouraging because we're, we live at a time where these are policies that affect more and more people all the time. And we have the means to, to encourage more active participation. And yet these kinds of outcomes, I think, lead us in the opposite direction with fewer people bothering because they, they, they feel that their voices just simply don't count. And, you know, to have had government officials with a menu of options and to have simply just discarded all of them, to have even had their had fellow parliamentarians come up with recommendations coming out of an extensive copyright review and to have simply ignored it. So they're not just ignoring Canadians or even ignoring their fellow parliamentarians who studied this issue. Um, doesn't bode well for, for future reforms at a minimum. Yeah, it's damaging to democracy, if you ask me. And, and the other thing, too, that it ties in with is a larger question about uh, the way that the country is run. Is it, you know, capitalism versus socialism and a, an elite that controls the government and doesn't pay uh, inheritance taxes, for example, while many, many go poor? Well, we listen. We face a lot of really challenging social issues right now, and and I think you know part of what takes place in the copyright realm is that officials may say that you know people are 
are understandably more focused on inflation, more focused on the environment, more focused on a whole range of other issues. These are the kinds of things no one else, no one is going to be paying attention to until people wake up in the first week of January 2023 and they suddenly find that these changes have been made, that they're that the copyright the copyright has been extended, that there's nothing new into the public domain for two decades in Canada, and they're left to wonder how on earth this just happened. Well, I'm not going to let go of my elite line here. The, the 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 income, the wealth of the elite since 1980 has tripled. So, uh, as I say, this is this is all tied into who's who's running who's running the world and what are our governments for. You're not going to get an argument from me that this government. Uh, frankly, all governments, but this government came in with with promise of doing things differently. And I think uh, seven, eight years later, it's been a disappointment for many who thought things might change, that that some of these issues might be better addressed. And the new team is isn't as different from the old team as some might have expected. Any final thoughts about your whole sort of career in this field and uh, publishing books and uh, how we can improve the system? Well, as, as you may know, I've been pleased to have been active in a, in a bunch of publishing initiatives, many of them in open access using Creative Commons licenses. And um, I think that uh, we could do well, especially coming out of the academic world, to see more and, and more of that. I've been really fortunate to have had um, publishers, and, and they are coming largely out of the academic world, who have been supportive of of open access, either as an interesting experiment or at times even more as a deep commitment to seeing that as being core to the, the academic mission. And, you know, I recognize that's not going to be for all publishers, but um, I've been really pleased and fortunate to have had the opportunity to participate in that way. Very good. Well, thanks so much for participating in the way that you have uh, on this podcast. All right. Thank you again so much for having me. That was a really fun conversation. Very good. Michael Geist is a Canadian academic, the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. Thank you again. Okay, thanks again for having me.